So first of all, I want to draw your attention to the sheet that was given yesterday. And I introduced you to seven questions that you can ask any person that you meet in life, uh, any, in any place. And already yesterday, uh, some uh, folk came to me and said that uh, they were going to share this this week itself. I know of one young person who's going to share it with five uh, Muslim co-workers tomorrow. And we actually had prayer for him up in the front here. And uh, so that really excites me. I'm going to very quickly walk you through the observations section from yesterday. And I said that the first bullet, once this exercise is complete, mutually exclusive, meaning that both views can't be right at the same time. And it doesn't matter with whom you do it, you will, uh, they will have to come to that conclusion. So now you need to start filling in the other blanks. The popular aphorism of today, all religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different. That's what you hear people say all around you. Now, if you take any religion, any faith, there are three things that seem to be common denominators. So the first blank there, all faiths have holy books. So Muslims have the Quran, and the Hindus have the Vedas, and uh, the Buddhists have their triple basket, and uh, so every faith has got holy books. Not only holy books, but uh, holy festivals. So I told you on Sunday morning that the Hindus are going to celebrate their Christmas in a few days' time, uh, Deepavali, and the Muslims cele uh, celebrated uh, a big feast uh, just recently. So all religions have holy festivals. And the third blank, all uh, religions have holy places, places of pilgrimage. So in Christianity, Jerusalem and Bethlehem would figure very prominently. In Islam, Mecca and Medina. And in Hinduism, my goodness, there are tons of places that people visit as places of pilgrimage. Now here is the more accurate statement. It is more correct to say that all religions are at best superficially similar but fundamentally different. And I gave you one example yesterday. Christianity talks about judgment, resurrection, heaven, hell. Hinduism talks about reincarnation. So they are radically opposed ideas. Not only Hinduism, but Buddhism and Sikhism, they all talk about reincarnation. So when you talk to people, based on the answers that they give, you can generally put them into one of these categories that I'm going to uh, walk you through. These are what are called the isms. And the first uh, bullet under that is syncretism. Syncretism is the mixture of truth with error. And the people of Israel constantly fell into that trap. They worship Jehovah, and at the same time they worship the Baal, and Ashtaroth, and Molech, all these false pagan deities. So syncretism is where you mix truth with error. Pluralism, that's a big one for the West right now, all opinions are equal and valid. That's pluralism. 
all opinions are equal and valid. So Christians can't get up and claim to have a monopoly of the truth. And so we are accused of being narrow-minded, of being bigots when we start declaring the gospel and make the claims of Christ very unique and binding. Secularism, a lot of our young people fall into this trap. Secularism, God is no longer relevant. We are living in the 21st century. This is the scientific age, uh, the age of modern technology. We are high tech and uh, God is no longer relevant. So that is secularism. And most of the people that you are going to come in contact with in life fall into this category of being secularists. The next category is humanism. Humanism simply means man is the measure of everything. Uh, man is God with a simple G, right? Humanism uh, means that uh, man is the captain of his uh, ship and the master of his fate. So you'll come across a lot of people who fall into that category. I remember when I was growing up in school, a young fellow, uh, one of my colleagues, loved to go around saying, my mind is my God, my mind is my God. And the fellow wouldn't have been even 13, 14 years of age. And he, uh, he, he uh, worshipped his mind. And so, so you have people in that category. Materialism. Materialism simply means that the only ultimate reality is the physical. The only reality is the physical, matter. There is nothing called the supernatural. So a lot of people that you and I meet are materialists. They only live for the moment. They, they don't think in terms of eternity. Eternity doesn't even factor into their thinking. So uh, what a challenge for us to get them to think along those lines, materialists. Inclusivism, or another name for it is universalism, and sadly, there are evangelical Christians even who would embrace this. God is so merciful that in the end, God is going to embrace everyone into his heaven. So it doesn't matter what they believed, doesn't matter how they lived their life, in the end, God being merciful is going to receive everyone and take them to heaven. <clears throat> now, if that is true, we are wasting our time hosting a missions conference like this. We are wasting money sending missionaries overseas, right? But we know that that's not true because where do we fit in? The, the next uh, statement, exclusivism. So you and I are exclusivists. If anyone asks you who are you in terms of faith, that's the answer that you've got to give. Now, why do we say that we are exclusivists? And we do so with humility and compassion. We don't go around uh, saying we are exclusivists with pride and arrogance. No, no, we are brokenhearted and we are compassionate. Now, here are the three statements that define us as being exclusivists. Uh, John 14, 6, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other way. Now, if your life has been uh, going pretty smoothly, I want to give you a little challenge. I want you to buy a pair of uh, Nike running shoes, put it on, and then go down the street and stop someone on the street and say, excuse me, but Jesus Christ is the only way and you can't make it to heaven apart from him. After you say that statement, run for dear life because that person is going to chase you and hound you to death. That's politically incorrect. Uh, 
Uh, instead, if you say all religions are the same, they'll take you to Swiss Chalet. So you've got your option. You can have someone chasing you down the road or being taken free to Swiss Chalet based on what you say, right? He's the only way. Acts 4.12, this morning I read that verse again for my own uh, refreshment. The Lord Jesus Christ, his name is the only name. Peter said, there is only one name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved and that's the name of the Lord Jesus. So when I talk over the radio in Tamil, I make that abundantly clear. It's not Krishna, it's not Ganesh, it's not Lakshmi, it's not Durga, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, the only name. And then 1 Timothy 2.5, he's the only mediator. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So there is only one person who can mediate on our behalf before a thrice holy God, and that is the God-man, the Lord Jesus. Did you get those three statements? The Lord Jesus is the only way, he's the only name, and he's the only mediator. And that is what is going to define you and me as being exclusivists. If you really want to check uh, where a Christian stands, whether he's in the liberal camp or in the evangelical camp, these are the three verses you have to ask that person. And if they deny it, then you know that they are not uh, born again, evangelical, exclusivist Christians uh, like you and me. Now, uh, what I shared with you today is just for your own personal information. You're not going to do this with anyone, right? You're not going to try and uh, get them to realize where they stand. No, this is for you to adjust your approach to a person if you know where they come from. So if a person is a materialist, your first task is to get them to believe in the supernatural. And, uh, uh, and how do you do that? So that's, that's a daunting task by itself. Now, where you like to end up in this exercise is the question at the bottom of the page. So once you do the exercise, and once you get them to see the first bullet mutually exclusive, hey, we both can't be right at the same time, you're raising doubts in the person's mind, you're going to ask this very simple, non-threatening question. Would you like to know how you can have a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God? You know what? No one gets offended by that question. Would you like to know how you can have a personal relationship with God? Because we just have been saying over the three days that in Islam, Allah is the distant, remote, aloof God. He never ever enters into a personal relationship with his creatures. The God of Hinduism is an impersonal force, Brahma. Uh, Buddhism does not even have the concept of God. So it's only the God of the Bible who is the personal God, the God who calls people by name, the God who loves to commune with people. So this is a wonderful question to ask people. Would you like to know how you can have a personal relationship with God? Now, when you get that far, that's when the page that was given to you today comes into play. So now you need to take that page and the good news, no blanks to fill. So before I part from you, I want to make life a little easy for you, okay? Don't want you to sweat more than what you're used to. And uh, you've got to have a method. 
and I'm, I'm giving you nine reasons why you should have a method under your belt that you can use when you are trying to communicate the gospel. You can have more than one method. And, and the method I'm going to show you is what's called the Roman road, all taken from the book of Romans, and you don't have to go all over the Bible. But let me just read a few reasons why a method is very important. Ensures that we know the gospel clearly ourselves, right? Gives a direction to head in general conversation. You know where to take a person from this level to this level to this level to this level, instead of going all over the map. Number three, gives us confidence to speak out when the opportunity arises. You know, every day, you and I should be looking out for opportunities. One of the prayers that I pray for myself, and I'm teaching people to pray, is a very simple prayer. Lord, may your purposes become a reality in my life today. Simple prayer. Lord, may your purposes become a reality in my life today. So I have a Bible study group, and a lady shared just two weeks ago, she's one of the most timid ladies in our group, and she said, you know what, Pastor, ever since I started praying that prayer, God has been bringing all kinds of people across my path, and I have even been able to lead some of them to Christ. It's unbelievable what's happening in my life when I started praying that prayer. So I want to recommend that prayer to you. Lord, may your purposes become a reality in my life today as I go to school, as I go to university, as I work at my workplace, in my community, in my neighborhood, and keep your eyes wide open. And God is going to bring someone across your path to whom you can minister. Number four, give simplicity on central issues. One of, one of the things that we uh, evangelicals are guilty of is Christian jargon. We love to use it. Sometimes we don't know what it even means, but we love to use it. I am justified. I am currently being sanctified. One day I will be glorified, and the person listening to you will be petrified. So, uh, <laughs> so you've, got to, uh, you've got to break your terms down. You've got to break your terms down in a way that people are able to understand. Keep it simple. Use the KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid. Pardon the last uh, expression of the last word, but uh, it's a nice word to keep in mind. Number five, by knowing how the gospel fits together, we can explain it simply without using any jargon ensures adequate coverage of the gospel. Sometimes I com come home and wonder, oh, did I do a good job in comprehensively explaining the gospel to so-and-so? And I've struggled with that, and I'm sure you have struggled with that. But when you have a method, you can be very sure that you are going to cover all the bases. You're not going to leave anything out. Helps to keep a gospel conversation on track. People love to take you on rabbit trails. And the devil is very smart. Just when you're getting to the core issues, people start asking a totally irrelevant question. But by having a method handy, you're able to keep the gospel conversation on track and come back to the rabbit trails later. Drawings. We are living in a visual age. 
Everyone is into drawings and pictures and images. So the second method that I use is a, is a visual image, a visual method. If I had the time, I could have shown that to you. But drawings help make the truths vivid and concrete. Those are two beautiful words. I would like you to underline them. Vivid and concrete as well as providing something that the person can take away with them. I take a sheet of paper, I do all my drawings, I explain, I hand it to the person and say, take it home and think it through. And let's meet and talk again. And just by looking at the pictures, the images, all the truths that have been shared come back to the mind. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's where we depend on the Holy Spirit. And the ninth reason why a method is very useful enables us to invite someone to commitment in a natural manner. Okay, you're not forcing yourself on the person in a very spontaneous way, things are moving and flowing, and at the end you're going to give them the option, would you like to embrace this savior to be your personal Lord and savior? Now, uh, we are just going to use one book, as I said, the book of Romans, and uh, we are going to uh, show a person what the gospel is, okay? So number one, you're going to highlight the problem. You've got to highlight the problem. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, the gospel kills before it heals. That's a very useful statement to keep in mind. The gospel kills before it heals. There's bad news in the gospel. So this is the bad news. We all have a problem. Remember in the seven questions, why is there evil and suffering in the world? That's what we are talking about here. And the problem is, we are all sinners. And so you read from Romans 3, I have given you all the scriptures there, keep your pen handy. I'm going to ask you to underline a few words. And this is exactly how I do it when I share the gospel using this particular method. There is no one righteous, so I underline no one. Not even one, I underline not even one. And then I would even proceed to say, not even you, not even me, we are not righteous. There is no one, so there are, the words come again, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, so circle the word all. They have together, underline the word together, become worthless. There is no one, so again underline no one, who does good not even one, again you'll underline that phrase, the way of peace they do not know, there is no fear before, of God before their eyes, all, and you'll circle the word all, have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious ideal for their life. Now if you do a count later, I think at least seven times you come across expressions like all, no one, not even you, makes it crystal clear that everyone is a sinner. And as I said yesterday or day before, when you talk to an orthodox Hindu, they, they would say, I'm not a sinner. I remember my very first uh, attempt at sharing the gospel with a Hindu way back in 1974. A guy was seated on a rock by the side of the Indian seashore on the beach I sat next to him, he was all dressed in full white, and I thought, my goodness, these are wonderful big fish to catch, 
And I was this young, hot-blooded, young evangelist. I wanted to get this big fish under my belt quick. And uh, I, I shared the gospel, and he very politely listened. <laughs> and at the end of the whole presentation, he looked at me very calmly and said, I am not a sinner. That's when all hell broke loose. <laughs> and I took a very, very uh, uh, militant posture like this, and I said, sir, you may not have been a sinner. I, I, my body was all shaking. I couldn't believe this guy had said this. Sir, up till now you may not have been a sinner, but today you have become a sinner because you have told your first lie. <laughs> and that's when he picked up a stone, and that's when I did the Donovan Bailey. <laughs> Ran for dear life. I have, I have run through a lot of pairs of Nike running shoes, <laughs> retreating and running. And that's how I've learned much of my evangelism, right? So, we might think that people are readily going to say, oh yeah, I am a sinner, but that's not reality. Remember the operative word of today? Spirituality. I am a spiritual person. People love to say that. No one knows what it means, but they love to dump it on you. And sometimes we return the favor and say, congratulations, you are spiritual, I am spiritual, so we are all okay, let's enjoy a cup of tea together. No, no, no. I have given you a definition of sin, a very comprehensive definition of sin. Sin is living a life independent of God. It is rebelling against God. It is disobeying God. It's going my own way, doing my own thing, and we all sin against God by our thoughts, words, and deeds. So you're laying the foundation. We all have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Have you heard that statement? On, when those uh, spaceships take off? Now, number two, there's a penalty. If you sin, there's a penalty. And the wages of sin is death. And again, I want you to uh, un underscore the words. The wages of sin is death. Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam was our representative, the federal head of the human race, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men, and I would circle the word all, because all sinned. Can you see how clear the Holy Spirit is making it? Everyone has sinned, everyone is going to die. And I always say tongue in cheek, I check Google today, one out of one dies. Statistic hasn't changed. Sometimes I wish it would say one out of one dies within brackets except Benjamin. <laughs> but uh, I know that's not true. So I've defined the three kinds of death, and in the interest of time, I'm not going to read that. But when you say death in the Bible, there's spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. That's hell. And we don't fight shy of talking about hell, okay? Now we turn the corner and come to the third uh, main point, the provision that God has made. When man couldn't do anything to help himself, when man couldn't lift himself up by his own bootstraps, God enters the picture and the provision, the amazing love of God. And again, as I read, I underline certain words. At just the right time, while we were still powerless, so I underline the word powerless. Christ died for the ungodly, so I underline the word ungodly. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, so I underline the word sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were God's enemies, and I underline the word enemies, did you see the fourfold description of humanity? Powerless, totally unlike God, missed the mark, that's sinners, and the enemies of God. That's our condition. That's the human predicament. Through the death of his son, having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. So here we talk about the death of Christ on our behalf. He died as our savior, sacrifice, substitute. The innocent dying for the guilty. The just dying for the unjust. What a great transaction that took place at the cross when, when the sin of all humanity was placed on the Lord Jesus and his righteousness credited to our account. Whenever I talk to a Hindu or a Muslim, I emphasize John 1.29. The Lord Jesus died on the cross as the Lamb of God who alone can take away the sin of the world. Because in those faiths, sacrifice is very prominent and dominant. You know, when the Hajj finishes, the Muslims kill sheep and camels. And all those animals have to be exported from countries like New Zealand because Saudi Arabia can't meet the demand. Millions, millions of these animals are sacrificed. The richer people would sacrifice the camel and the poorer people would go for the lamb. So the, the, the concept of sacrifice is huge in the mind of a Muslim and a Hindu. And to be able to introduce to them the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who alone can take away the sin of the world. Wow. And we trust the Holy Spirit to just burn it into their minds. Okay, so the provision. And then we come to the plea. You know, we have to make a gospel plea. Paul said it uh, over and over again in his letters. I plead with you, I beg of you, I urge you. Come to Christ, come to Christ. So the conditions for salvation. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I would underscore the word will. Certainty, absolute assurance. If you believe and if you confess, you will receive salvation. For it is with your heart that you believe and are made right with God. Justified simply means to be made right with God. And it is with your mouth that you confess that Jesus Christ is your only Lord and Savior and you are saved. And what a beautiful promise for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And as I talk, I encourage the person that I'm seeking to reach to, to respond to Christ, to reach out to the Lord Jesus. And then comes the prayer. You know, once you highlight the plea and the conditions, uh, inviting the Savior. And I've given you a sample prayer. You don't have to pray this verbatim, but in case you're wondering what components to include in the sinner's prayer, I have intentionally made it a pretty comprehensive prayer. So let me read it through one time. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you by thought, word, and deed. I repent of my sin. I believe with all my heart that you personally died for me on the cross as my savior, sacrifice, substitute. Thank you for dying for me. 
I open the door of my life and receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. Please come into my life, forgive all my sins, and give me the gift of eternal life. Thank you for hearing my prayer and for coming into my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. That's the purpose of salvation, right? That I be conformed to the image of Christ. And wouldn't hurt to mention that in the sinner's prayer, the goal of your salvation. So generally, depending on the circumstance, I would actually encourage people to kneel when they do this prayer because this is the most important decision of their life. When I talk to young people, I always uh, say the three M's, choice of master, mission, mate. Those are the top three decisions of life. Master, whom am I going to follow and serve? God, the savior, or sin, or Satan, right? The choice is there. And then the decision, uh, mission, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with my life? And mate, whom am I going to marry? But the master is the most important. Everything else is going to get defined by that one big decision, okay? So it's great if you can kneel down and pray, but, uh, uh, or stand, but uh, you invoke the presence of God, the presence power of the Holy Spirit, as you seek to lead the person into this prayer. Now, God is faithful, and all of you, if you are sincere and serious, those are the two operative words. You've got to be sincere, you've got to be serious. You know, I learned very early in my Christian life, you get what you expect. <laughs> if you don't expect anyone to get saved, no one gets saved. So I always have expectation. Lord, today someone is going to come to know you through me, through what I share, through my life. I believe that with all my heart. So when I do gospel preaching, I believe it. Lord, someone is going to respond to you today. You receive according to your expectation. According to your faith, be it unto you, the Lord Jesus said. So I want to encourage and challenge all of you, every day as you go through life, expect the Lord to use you. And expect the Lord to bring some soul home to himself through your witness. And you'll be amazed how God takes you at your word. So be sincere, be serious, and things are going to happen. So time has almost caught up, but the last section is the promises. Again, all taken from the book of Romans. Just one book of the Bible. When the person responds to Christ, your first follow-up lesson is going to be the blessings. What has come true in your life because you responded to the Savior? And you would walk them through all those scriptures. I wish I had time for a Q&A, but uh, time wouldn't permit it. And uh, so, I'm waiting to hear some great stories come from Calvary Baptist Church as you take this and implement it. On your way out, uh, I have one of my prayer letters on the chair at the back, and if you would like to pray for me, uh, just grab hold of one of these and uh, take it home with you and pray. Lord, thank you for all these folk who are out here today. Thank you for their enthusiasm, the desire, and pray that together as we seek to reach out to a hurting world that you will be pleased to take us and use us, empower us. Holy Spirit of God, fall afresh on us, anoint us, 
and release us from ministry and protect us from all the wiles of the evil one. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.